Chris, thank you very much for the invitation to come and join you. Being a politician, I'm going to use old-fashioned paper. Thank you for the invitation. I thought I'd begin with an observation before moving into the specifics of the application of big society, because what you asked for, I think, was an analysis of, or a discussion of how the big society idea fits into and is carried forward by the uh, white paper proposal. So I begin with an observation that in July 2010, the National Health Service celebrated its 62nd birthday, uh, which means that discussion about management change in the service moved into its 63rd year, a consistent year. I'm often asked, am I skeptical about the ideas in the white paper? Well, I have two answers to that. The first is that I'm skeptical about everything because life has taught me that that's not a bad starting point. But secondly, to say that the ideas that are in the white paper are ideas that I have myself articulated, both as Secretary of State and before that as a junior minister. And I've listened, as I said somewhere last night, uh, to every Secretary of State, probably with the exception of Frank Dobson, articulate the ideas that are within the white paper over a period of 20 I first served as a health minister. So I don't find certainly no resistance on my part to the ideas in the white paper. What I think is important is to set them in the context of the time that the, the white paper is introduced so that we're clear what are the key issues that face the health service because that's going to shape the way in which those ideas are carried out in practice. And I make no apology at all. I'm not going to dwell on this this morning because it's not at the heart of the, the theme of the morning. But I make no apology at all for reminding those who are following this discussion that my view is that the key issue facing the health service over the next four years is how to deliver what I summarize as the Nicholson Challenge, which I think is best described as 4% efficiency gain compound over four years. And that is a program, that is a commitment, which really does justify all the superlatives that are claimed for it. There is no precedent in the history of the health service for delivering 4% efficiency gain in a single year. There's no precedent anyone's yet shown to me of a healthcare system anywhere in the world that's delivered 4% efficiency gain four years running. But that is what the NHS is committed to, and that is what's going to make the weather in the health service over the next four years. So I set that as the background. All the discussion that we have about how the structures change, how the political ideas are applied in the health service, all of that discussion has to take place against the background of that central fact. And sometimes I think it's necessary when we are having discussions like this in nice warm rooms to throw open the window and remind people what's going on outside. There is the, the demand to deliver 4% efficiency gain compound over four years, first articulated by Sir David Nicholson with the support of the Labour government before the election, endorsed by the incoming government after the election. It's almost not a political issue. It's a management challenge which is unavoidable. Now, against that background, what's the relevance of the big society idea? I don't actually agree with Tim Lawton or the implication of what Tim said. There's lack of clarity around uh, what the Prime Minister at least means by the big society. I'm very clear what he means, and I have to say I think it's something that's at the very heart of what I think is interesting and important in politics. And I think it's best summed up by his phrase that there is such a thing as society, and everyone in the room will know why that's the first part of the sentence, 
there is such a thing as society. It's just not the same thing as the state. In other words, what we're seeking to do in developing the idea of a big society is to encourage the view that each of us as citizens has a responsibility to other people that we live with in the same society, but that we should be looking for a network of relationships that discharge that responsibility, not seeing every one of those responsibilities channeled through the agency of the state. If we engage in local activity, whether it's political activity, charitable activity, or simply social activity in the communities in which we live, then we're engaging in society quite independently of any engagement with the state. And that's, I think, a fundamentally important political idea. It's what's summed up in the phrase civic society. And it's looking for ways of allowing citizens to engage directly with each other, including engaging collectively, but not imagining that every one of those relationships has to be discharged through the state. And that seems to me to be a core idea in the kind of evolution of health policy that I guess most of us in this room would want to see. Certainly, I do. I want to dwell for a moment on one particular aspect of that, which is directly relevant to healthcare. And that's what uh, we mean by the concept of professionalism. Clinical professionals in the health service, in, in practice, often emphasize, I think rightly, the importance of the professional's freedom to discharge, to, to do their best for their individual patient. But with that freedom must come a responsibility. And this is a big and complex idea, and I'm trying to summarize it, but I think it's a very direct application of the principle of the big society. If we're to deliver the kind of improvement we want to see in healthcare, then the professions must own the process of challenging professional delivery of service. In order to illustrate the point, recount a conversation I had with a couple of very bright doctors last night that started off saying, if we're going to deliver the Nicholson Challenge, efficiency gain, don't we have to understand that we have to address more effectively than we have done in the past the issue of practice variation, the issue of avoiding doing things that are either of low effectiveness, of no effectiveness, or in some extreme cases actually negative effectiveness in terms of treating patients? And the question was put to me, when are the politicians going to have the courage to face this issue? Well, through the agency of NICE, through the, through the willingness to eliminate unnecessary or, uh, hospital structures and healthcare structures that have popular support that don't, ha don't have clinical evidence to support them. It's a correct challenge, it's a real challenge to put to the politicians. But I make no apology for putting the challenge back to the professions themselves. It's the question that Ian Kennedy asked in the most extreme case at Bristol, or the challenge he offered, which was that the scandal of Bristol wasn't that none of the professionals knew what was going on, it was that all of the professionals knew what was going on. So one of the most important manifestations of the big society idea, for me, is to find ways of throwing to the professions the challenge of quality and efficiency in the delivery of healthcare, engaging the royal colleges. If the royal colleges just are to justify their status as leaders and specialists in their fields, what are they doing 
to drive quality and efficiency into the delivery of healthcare by professional clinicians, because if they don't do it, who else in the game is as well positioned to do it as they are? So a key element of the big, uh, and that's quite consciously in my mind, not doing it through NHS management or, th or through the agency of the state. It's saying that's what it means to be a professional. Yes, I'm in favor of in professional independence, but I'm also in favor of professional responsibility. And if the profession is to claim the right to independence and self-government, then it must introduce a concept that was I was introduced to by a uh, now retired headmaster in the education world when he said, if you want to understand what it means to be a professional, you have to understand the concept of divine discontent, which is a memorable phrase and I hope summarizes what I'm trying to describe. You don't have to be religious to understand it. One or two other things I'd just like to touch on quickly as to the, where does the big society concept apply in the delivery of healthcare, and I'm going to talk very much in headlines, otherwise I shall outstay my welcome. If we're to try to move away from an over-centralized model, which is part of this more varied, more plural process of decision-making, one of the issues we're going to stumble across pretty much day one of that process is the extent to which we're willing to tolerate local variation. Everybody can make the speech about localism, and in the next breath, they make the speech about postcode lottery. Now, which one is the one that we're going to run with? Everybody knows the argument. That's a key dichotomy, intrinsic in the concept of promoting the big society uh, ideas in healthcare. Secondly, you specifically ask how far do we go down the road of patient involvement? Well, I don't think any clinician would argue that modern healthcare can be delivered without greater patient involvement than was traditionally often the case. Greater role for patient-related outcome measures in order to understand what it felt like for the patient at the time. Importantly, particularly again, and I link it back, which is why I started with the, the thing that is making the weather, in the context of the Nicholson Challenge, if we're to deliver efficiency, we need to recognize that if you engage patients in decisions about their own health care, you get a different judgment about risk from I the, the circumstance if the professional makes that decision on behalf of the patient. And that's not unique to healthcare. That's normal when professionals of whatever profession advise clients or patients. Professionals don't claim for themselves the right to take risks at the, uh, in the commercial world is to take a commercial view. Simple way of illustrating it. Anyone who's a businessman present, when did you last hear a lawyer say, yes, do the deal? Lawyers are paid to tell you why you shouldn't do the deal. Ultimately, you have to make a judgment. And it's the same thing about patients. This is ample evidence in the relationship between clinician and patient, that patients are more willing to take a sensible risk, a commercial view, than the professional is. Working through the implications of that and how we get comfortable with it is an important part of the, the concept of the big society. We move on to some more sensitive, politically sensitive areas, the headline words choice and competition. It's dangerous territory for a politician, this, because we've all heard the response, everybody wants quality, they don't want choice. And I understand that point. Again, want to offer some headlines. First of all, if you have choice, you will have competition. 
if a commissioner using a tax-funded budget has a choice about how best to deliver an objective, in other words, has more than one provider capable of meeting that requirement, the providers will compete for the opportunity to satisfy that requirement because they're human beings. And it won't necessarily be a commercial competition. It could be a professional competition between professionals who have different ways of dealing with the same questions and each of whom thinks their solution is better. Because there's no point trying to create a world where there is no competition. The health service has never been a world where there's no competition because human beings have a natural desire to do something better than the person that they think doesn't do it as well as they do. So there's a tendency to think that competition is what business people do and that somehow there's a cultural issue in healthcare. But I think we have to be more honest with ourselves about uh, the, the, the pressures we're dealing with. I don't think that there's ever been a world in healthcare where there has been no competition. And I think competition, with so competition of solutions is in the interests both of taxpayers and of patients. But we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that all competition is spot competition. Introduce an even more emotive word that all markets are spot markets. They're not. I was at a meeting with the private providers last week where I heard a passionate argument in favour of properly structured pathways, which in some audiences I'll be told is inconsistent with a concept of professional competi of competition. Actually, this is a competition of solutions. It's not a competition purely based on individual transactions. So I am in favour of any willing provider, but I'm only in favour of that as a means to an end. And the end is the efficient delivery of the Nicholson challenge, which cannot be done in terms of either patient outcomes, clinical excellence, or any of the things we all want to see, cannot be done without understanding the importance of different parts of the system relating to each other. Competing agents understand that as well as the rest of us. Final thought, in my mind, we should talk about choice. We should recognize the importance of choice because that creates a competition of solutions. But we must, we must make the point, and I, I simply say it in order to uh, flag that I've, I recognize it, that in a tax-funded healthcare system, choice cannot be absolute. Of course it can't. And in particular, it won't be against the background shaped by the Nicholson Challenge. If we're having to drive efficiency gains, then it's choice in a context. But choice of alternative solutions, choice that in engages patients more effectively in the, d in the decisions about their own health care, and choice in a world where professional people accept more than they have done traditionally the responsibility for challenging professional practice in order to deliver the objectives we, sh we all share of delivering equitable access to high-quality health care, which is what we're there to try to do. Two answers I'd offer to that, Chris. The first is to remind ourselves that this system is not intended to be fund-holding plus. It's a rather inelegant phrase in the white paper, but it doesn't say GPs in their surgeries are the main commissioning agents in the health service in the future. It says that 
that commissioning will be done by GP-led commissioning consortia. Um, that's a key distinction in my mind, that this is a commissioning process with GPs in the leadership or accountability role. It's not GPs managing all the commissioning. So that's the first point that I would make. And the second point, I think you're absolutely right to say clearly one of the areas of sensitivity that we have to make certain that these GP-led commissioning consortia are as open to new ideas about the delivery of primary care as they should be about the delivery of secondary care. I have to be careful what I say about this because Claire Gerardi's hat won't face away. But there are numerous examples, of course, of exceptionally good primary care delivered across the health service in different parts and different models of the delivery of primary care as well. But we all also know that there are examples of, of uh, the delivery of primary care that don't meet the aspirations that Claire and the rest of us would have for general practice. And equally, even in areas where we think it's good, and this is sometimes more difficult, we should, in my view, be open to people who come in from outside and say, actually, that's not bad, but have you thought about doing it this way? And so that's one of the areas of challenge where these GP-led commissioning consortia have to demonstrate that they're independent of their accountability mechanisms. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Stephen, for a very, very thought-provoking address to us. I very much welcome your thoughts on professionalism. When I did the work for the Royal College, we came out with a statement that professionalism is underpinned by the values, behaviours and relationships that underpin the trust the public has in doctors. So I just wondered, thinking about GP commissioning, what effect do you think that is going to have on professionalism and the trust the public has in doctors? And the second question I'd just like to ask you is you skipped over quite quickly, I think, localism versus postcode lotteries. And uh, I just wondered if you'd like to say which side of the fence are you sitting on <laughs> on that one? Well, I think the second part of your question is, in a sense, the easier one to answer because the truth is these are two irreconcilable. The fact that they're irreconcilable is inescapable. It's a debate that's as old as the health service and it will go back and forth a bit like the tide. In the end, there is a political choice here that we've chosen to set up not a series of local health services, but a national health service. And however the bureaucracy is reorganized, whatever the organogram says, ultimately, the person who's accountable to Parliament, through Parliament to the taxpayers, for the spending of a hundred and odd billion pounds of public money is the Secretary of State. So when it goes wrong, John Humphreys sends an invitation to the Secretary of State. And if he says, I don't think you want to see me, you want to see somebody nobody's ever heard of, John Humphreys doesn't interview somebody he's never heard of. He simply says, we invited the Secretary of State to come, and he declined. And you can do that once or twice, but you can't do it 10 past 8 every morning for a week. However we dress it up, that's the unavoidable central fact. And frankly, I think it's correct, A, because it's, it's the second largest spending program in the, in the Treasury's public spending program, so it's not unreasonable that a politician is ultimately responsible for it. Second in important point is to say that although I'm unapologetic for the view the Secretary of State is responsible ultimately for a national system, that doesn't mean he should aspire to make every decision. It's impossible to make every decision. You then move on from central unavoidable fact to management theory, if you like, 
how do you run one of the largest organizations in the world in order to, to deliver your objectives? You do it by creating space for people, whether they're professionals or managers, do their job effectively on your behalf. And you're responsible for the outcome, but you don't seek to second-guess every decision. And that's the balance that the Secretary of State has to get right. I think So ultimately, it's a national service, but if you're to deliver your objectives, you have to create space to allow people to get on with the job, because if they're all waiting for a clearance from Richmond House, nothing ever happens. Then how does professionalism mix uh, with the GP's role in the new world, I think, is, was the question. And here I come back to my first answer to Chris, actually, that what is envisaged as I read the white paper, and as I think is, I think it's correct, is that what we're seeking to do in the white paper is, in effect, create GP-led commissioning units. But actually, GPs, intelligent GPs, aren't going to try to guess, because that's all it, what it would be, uh, what's the best solution for tertiary liver care? They're going to ask somebody who knows. So it's GPs because they're the no most numerous, they're the most local, it's the obvious starting point. But as a proxy for a broad-based clinical engagement in commissioning. And that's, I, that's an important message, and I don't think it's inconsistent with what the Secretary of State said. It's clinical engagement in commissioning with GPs in the front line. That is not the same thing as the GP's professional judgment in the consulting room about the delivery of care as a general practitioner. It's using their professional knowledge as the accountability mechanism through the commissioning system. 